Today we're going to start a four-week mini-series in the book of Psalms. For those of you who remember, when I first got to Redeemer, we spent the summer looking at the book of Psalms. That series was called Joy in the Morning. And I have this kind of goal that I, I kind of keep to myself, but clearly I'm not keeping it to myself because I'm sharing it with all of you right now, that as, as I spend time here at Redeemer over the next, Lord willing, 20, 30 years, um, that we will make our way through the entire book of Psalms. And we'll just keep on filing Psalms into that um, series. That's, that's my goal. That's my secret goal. That's now public. Um, we spent a lot of time that summer wrestling with the discipline of lament. And what we learned is that God actually invites us to cry out to him, whether that be in sorrow, anger, frustration, even praise, obviously. But, but the point I want us to, to kind of wrap our minds around is that God wants to hear, for, hear from us. And he can take whatever we throw at him. He can take whatever we throw at him. He's God. And that doesn't mean when we throw something at him, it's always righteous. In fact, I think much of the time it's probably unrighteous. But he can take it, and he's faithful to forgive us if we, if we step out of line. And that should be encouraging to us, similar to, to when your child might, might yell at you and say things that you know they don't mean. You forgive them. You don't hold grudges. Lord willing, you don't hold grudges against your children for, for saying nasty things to you. I mean, I, I hope not, because then we'd all, I mean, I certainly would have many grudges held against me for the nasty things I've said growing up in my home. The psalm we'll be looking at this morning has the heart of lament, but I think it's better to categorize it as a psalm of wisdom. And what we'll see as we work our way through the text is that the psalmist does not, to be, does not appear to be crying out to God in the present, but reflecting on past frustrations and anger, frustrations and anger that were shaped by jealousy and envy over the prosperity, or as we'll see, what he saw as the peace of the wicked. But before we jump in, I want to spend some time talking about this psalm sort of contextually. First of all, this psalm raises some difficult questions. Questions that I think many of us, if not all of us, have at some point or another asked. Why do the faithful suffer while the wicked are at peace? Is faithfulness to God's calling on our lives even worth it, or would our time be better spent serving ourselves, pursuing comfort, security? Is God's blessing even real? Does God even hear us, or does he even know our struggles as we seek to follow him? I think that these are legitimate questions because they are the things that we encounter on a regular basis. In fact, we can probably all point to very specific times where we made the faithful decision, the right decision, and the result was pain, frustration, loss of friendship, maybe even loss of a job. And so this is confusing for us because throughout the scriptures, we're taught that if we walk according to a certain standard, we will be blessed. In fact, Psalm 1 says that the person who walks according to God's commands will prosper in all that they do. While Psalm 32 argues that the wicked will experience sorrow and pain, yet our everyday lives do not always tell that story. One might draw the conclusion that the Bible is wrong. But I believe the problem is not necessarily with the scriptures, but with our understanding of blessing and prosperity. 
Verse 1 says that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But what in the world does that even mean? I remember being at a checkout line with my son several years ago. And my six-year-old at the time looked at me while we were getting ready to leave, and he asked if I could buy him a Matchbox car. I told him no, because you can't buy a car every single time you're online at the checkout. And he then proceeded to argue his case about how he obeyed while we were in the store, how he helped me with his sister, all of which were true. He's a good kid, but I still didn't buy him the toy. He was mad at me. And in his mind, he was mad at me because he believed that if he did the right thing, he would get the stuff he wanted. It wasn't fair. Maybe he even started questioning the point of obedience. Why bother? But isn't that our logic as well? We do all the right things. We serve the church. We sacrificially give, but for some reason, we still can't pay the bills. Our marriages are still struggling. Our children are wayward. And it's times like these where we are tempted to question the promise-keeping nature of our God. Is he really good? Because it sure doesn't feel like it. It sure doesn't feel like it. Maybe even some of us are experiencing that recently, where you're going through something, where collectively, as an entire globe, we've been going through something for two years, and we're supposed to say God is good? Well, let's see what the text says. First thing, Psalm 73 is the first psalm of the third book of the Psalter, and it sits at the center of the entire book of Psalms. Scholars argue that book three marks a significant shift in the story of the Psalter, moving it from lament to hope, and that Psalm 73 actually serves as the pivot point. For more on that, I would encourage you, I I preached a a sermon called the... um, Under Foreign Kings, the story of the Psalter, where I kind of track through this entire story that is laid out in the book of Psalms. It's the the first sermon in the series that we're looking at right now. Scholars also believe that this psalm was written by a royal figure, which is really interesting, and we're going to carry that theme throughout. King Solomon, to be specific, which is interesting because the tension of this psalm is between the worship of God and autonomy. Should I follow God Or should I do my own thing? But as I studied this passage, knowing what I know about Solomon and the many other kings of Israel, the idea of an imagine-if king began to emerge. Imagine if Solomon or any other king of Israel even remotely resembled the individual being described here. Imagine if when faced with the temptation to pursue his own passions and desires, comfort, security, wealth, that he chose the path less traveled, the path of humility and faithfulness. Imagine if this king loved God. Imagine if this king loved his people more than himself. And the question that kept nagging me, is there even such a king? And so as we travel through our text this morning, I want us to keep this imagine-if king in our minds. Do we ever find him? And how does this message from the pen of a king land in our lives as the people of God? Here in 2022. And so, verse 1, it says this Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so, the psalmist begins with this proclamation that God is good. He's good to his people, the people of God, the nation of Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You'll notice what, what Hebrew poetry does it works with this, with this type of um, this, this tool called parallelism. And, and you'll see, he says, God is good to Israel. 
And then he further describes in the next line who Israel is, to those who are pure in heart. I think that's important that we understand how parallelism works. There's two lines. The first line makes a statement. The next line either clarifies that statement, builds on that statement, or opposes that statement. Right? That's how Hebrew poetry works. It's parallelism. And so the psalmist is making a theological statement that faithfulness leads to blessing, which is how the book of Psalms begins. And the language here suggests that this is something that he's absolutely sure of. God is absolutely good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's fully convinced that God is good and will remain faithful to his people. But this was not always the case for him. He did not always think this way. In fact, what we see in this psalm, it appears that he went through a season of his life where he didn't buy this at all. How many of us can resonate with that? How many of us can really look back over the course of our lives and realize, yeah, I was a Christian at that point, but I didn't buy anything that was being sold from this book. I've experienced that. And maybe there are people in this room that are experiencing that right now. Yeah, I'm going to keep doing the thing. I'm going to go to church. But man, I'm not convinced. Because as I look around, my life feels like it is caving in on me. And yet as I look around, everyone else who doesn't seem to give a rip about this or about the God that this book reveals seems to be doing just fine. Why bother? And that's going to be the refrain that we go back to throughout this sermon. Why bother? Is he worth it? Verses 2 through 16 deals with this whole question. Is he worth it? The question that the psalmist wants us to wrestle with is whether or not it makes sense to remain faithful. Similar to my son in the supermarket, is obedience worth the trouble? So verse 2 says this, for I was, no, excuse me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly sl slipped. I think it's helpful to understand it like this. God is good to Israel, but what about me? God is good to Israel, but what about me? Because my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And so the question that we're wrestling with, it's like, it's like okay, I see Israel. I see, I see the pure in heart that God seems to be blessing them. But what about me? What about me? And so there was something that happened to the psalmist, something that almost ruined him as he was absolutely sure of who his God was. There was something that piqued his interest, something else that was whispering into his ear. And it was the thing that almost derailed him. And as we'll see a bit later, this derailment, should he have gone through with it, would have led to the loss of an entire generation of God's people. And so what is this thing? Well, the, the text continues, verses 3 through 12. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. And find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. 
Well, verse 3 begins with this small Hebrew word, key, which means because. In a sense, he's answering a question. Why did I almost stumble and fall? Well, because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And interesting, this word prosperity, I don't really like this translation because the word that's being translated prosperity is shalom. And so that word means peace. That word means wholeness. That word means complete. Like you are in a state of, of completeness. Everything is going well. And so, so in the mind of the psalmist, he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the peace of the wicked. When he saw that their lives were the very thing that Israel was pursuing all of their days. Which is so interesting, right? Which is so interesting. That a king of Israel or a faithful one in Israel, is looking at the world and saying, they have shalom. They have the peace of God. Do we ever do that? Do we ever look at the world around us and think, they have the very thing that I'm looking for? They have the very thing that the God of the Bible promises me if I remain faithful to him, and they're not being faithful. Well, the answer to this question that we're kind of wrestling with is, 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 is only, there's only two options. Yes, they do have the peace of God apart from God, or the psalmist's view of peace is massively disruptive, disrupted. And I'm going to go with the latter on that, that his understanding of peace during this time of frustration is not the peace that, that we see unfolding throughout the scriptures. Let's see, let's, let's, let's go on here, right? He then describes this piece. Remember Hebrew parallelism, right? He, he gives something and then there's some descriptions. And so verses 3 through 12 are really a description of this perception of peace. No pain until death. Well provided for. They don't experience trouble. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And, and this is like that thought where, is, where if you look at the world, the majority of people are not living well. Right, there's the 1% or 2%, 3% that are in the upper echelon of society, but the majority of the world, and I'm saying outside of America, outside of the West, are not living well. It's a hand-to-mouth sort of life. And so he's thinking in his head, the, the, the evil don't experience what the rest of mankind experience. They have everything they need and more. And notice the creation language here. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. They're taking the created order, and they're flipping it on its head, calling what God calls evil good, and, and they seem to be fine. They seem to be fine. There's no fault in them. In fact, the people of God, it says in verse 10, they turn back and look at them, and they, and they find no fault in them. They're kind of looking like they seem like they're doing okay. And then they start questioning, does God even know? Now they're questioning the, the omniscience of God, the all-knowing nature of God. Does God even realize what's going on? Have you ever had that conversation with yourself? Does God know what's actually happening in the world right now? Does God know what, what so-and-so is, is going through? Does God know what we're going through? Because it seems like he's blind. Have you ever felt that way? The psalmist has. The psalmist has. I've felt that way. I've wrestled with that very thing. And this individual, especially if he's a king, he knows the law. He knows that in Deuteronomy 17, where God lays out what it looks like to be a king, he's called to a life of humility, of meekness. 
that he's forbidden to pursue excess in wealth, but he's still jealous. He wants the comforts that are afforded to those who are all around him. Perhaps these are kings from other nations. He's questioning the commandments of God because it seems that in his efforts to keep them, he has found nothing but pain. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? The psalmist saw the appearance of peace, but is the peace afforded to us by the world the peace that we truly long for? Some of us might answer that question with a yes. We might. And I think that might be the point that the psalmist is trying to make. See, the psalm challenges our lenses. How do we define blessing, goodness? How do we define shalom? Do we define it by verses 3 through 12? Or is there something more that we long for, that we actually need? Verses 13 through 14 continue. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Have you ever felt like that? Like every morning? You just wake up and you're just beaten down every morning. I've had seasons of my life like that. Where you wake up and you're like, here we go again. Where you actually don't trust the promise that God's mercies are new every morning. You trust the lie of here we go again. And so he considers his life, all the pain that he has been through. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And for a brief moment, he thinks to himself, surely his efforts to remain faithful to God's commandments have been a complete waste of time and effort. And this is the temptation, that life apart from God is better than life with God. One scholar puts it like this, it is the wager of the wicked that purity of heart is not a prerequisite for God's goodness. In other words, we can have all the benefits of being a child of God, but maybe we don't need God to get them. We can have all the benefits, but maybe we don't need God to get them. But, but honestly, isn't this the story of the Bible? It's where Adam begins choosing autonomy over covenant faithfulness in the garden. It is Israel, after being redeemed and rescued from Egypt, from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, longing to go back. It's Solomon, who was given all wisdom, entrusted with the law of God to lead the people of Israel, who in the end chose the very temptations that he fought so valiantly against in this psalm. And ultimately, it is Jesus being led out into the wilderness, presented with the option to choose a life of worship and faithfulness to his Father or take the road of ease, comfort, sidestepping the cross and the suffering that he was destined for from the foundations of the world. But this time it was different. See, this time the covenant was kept by the faithful one. We're going to get back to that. We had this psalm read at our wedding and the more I study it, and the more I understand it, I think the more appropriate it is. We wanted to begin our lives together on the foundation that regardless of what we went through, that God would always be enough. Super godly, right? 
I mean, I was 25, man. I was a godly dude. (laughs) I didn't know what I was talking about. And as the years rolled on, we learned that faithfulness and following Jesus, it requires risk and sacrifice. Following Jesus requires risk and sacrifice. It requires pursuing God above all things, regardless of the consequences. And I know, trust me, I know, I have not even remotely done this, even like remotely close to perfectly, and, and, and I struggle with faithfully. The struggle comes when we start to look back at those risk-filled decisions and those sacrificial decisions. And we start to wonder where those decisions, where those decisions got us. And how life could have been vastly different if we maybe chose a path that was easier, less risky, unfaithful. And we need to be careful of this thinking because this is the thinking that can turn a life of faithfulness into a life of bitterness and frustration, which is where the volume of verse 15 is almost deafening. If I had said, I will speak thus, if I, would have, if I said, I would have spoke everything that I just said in verses you know, 3 through 14, if I have said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed a generation of your children. If I had publicized these thoughts, this is why I think this is a reflection on the past. I think he's looking back and he's saying, man, I used to think this way. Praise God, I don't anymore. Because he's saying, if I would have actually promoted this way of thinking, this philosophy of life, I would have betrayed an entire generation of your children. And so the psalmist has an epiphany. He realizes that while it might be tempting to choose the path of ease and comfort, that path has consequences that would not only impact his own life, but the lives of those who would come after him. And I think of my children. I think of my three kids that I I pray that they look at the lives of of Deanna and myself and they see faithfulness. Not perfection. I know they don't see perfection because I apologize to them regularly. But I pray they see faithfulness. I pray that for all the disagreements we might have, that they can look back and say, but my parents loved Jesus and they loved us. And they sure didn't do it perfectly. Trust me, a month in isolation and quarantine with your children will prove that you are not going to parent perfectly. There were a lot of nights where I'm sure the neighbors heard yelling coming out of our home. But we made it through. We made it through. The text says that he would have betrayed an entire generation of your children. An entire generation of God's people would have been led astray if he decided that comfort was more valuable than faithfulness, luxury more precious than God, his own desires more important than the good of his own people. And so the text continues, verses 20, 17 through 28, that third point in our outline. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. This is where everything begins to shift. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Let's, let's stop there for a second. When I thought how to understand this, excuse me, verse 16. 
when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, right? When I tried to figure this out, when I tried to wrap my mind around it, it just didn't make sense. Nothing, nothing seemed to come into focus. Everything was foggy until, right? Have you ever had an until moment where like everything doesn't make sense and all of a sudden everything starts to come together until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. When I went into the sanctuary of God, the place where, where sacrifices are made to the Almighty, the place where Israel gathers to worship their king. Until then, I didn't get it. But once I stood in that place with his eyes fixed on what he was lacking, and in what everyone else had, his life did seem, to seem like a complete waste of time. But as he shifted his gaze away from his self-pity and jealousy, and he began to reorient himself towards God, he started realizing that the pursuits of the wicked ultimately would not be peaceful and prosperous, but rather they would end in destruction. But what is it that causes his gift, his, his gaze to shift? The text tells us that it all happened when he went into the sanctuary of God. And it was in the sanctuary of God where he would have looked around and he would have seen the consequences of sin surrounding him. Because it was in the sanctuary of God where animals were slaughtered and sacrificed to God. Bloodstains and possibly the odor of decaying carcasses could have, been, could have served as a wake-up call for the psalmist. That the wages of sin... And the pursuit of autonomy over submission to God truly is death. But not only that, it was the place of worship. The place where heaven and earth comes together. For us, that place is the person and work of King Jesus. And it is the place where, and it is when we fix our eyes upon him, do we come to realize that the peace of this world is no peace at all. That the peace of this world is no peace at all. And it's at that moment the lights go on. He snaps out of it. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept utterly away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Another way to translate that is you despise them, you despise their image. Again, creation language is being used here. God despises their image because it's not his image. It's the marred and broken image of Adam. The text continues. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. See, his jealousy, his frustration, his longing for fulfillment outside the presence and mission of God stripped him of his image-bearing nature. It made him subhuman. And this is the truth that we're reading about here, that when we pursue a life of ease, comfort, and security above a life of sacrifice and service of God, and when we shy away from God's mission because we're scared that it might cost us more than we're able to bear losing, we are no longer imaging God but rather we are living as descendants of Adam, choosing creation over creator. Choosing creation over creator. See, the thing is, is that we have forgotten what it means to be human because we forget to look at the truly human one and the life he led. 
the truly human one, Jesus, the true Israel, the one who lived out the commands of God faithfully. Please tell me about his life. Did he have a life of ease, a life of comfort, a life of wealth, a life of any of the things that we are pursuing in this life? The answer is a resounding no. The son of man didn't even have a place to lay his head, the scriptures tell us. And it says that he was faithful, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most shameful way someone could have gone in the ancient world. And this goes back to the thing that we've been talking about for, for the three years I've been here, that not only are we forgiven by the cross, but we are formed by the cross. We are called to live cross-shaped lives, meaning that we enter into the suffering of others, that we do not pursue wealth and luxury over the sacrificial life of God. This is heavy, though, because this runs counter to every single thing we are taught by the American dream that has been just like poured into our brains. We live a kingdom dream, which is different. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the Beatitudes. Blessed are what? Blessed are the broken? Blessed are the poor? Well, that don't make sense because that doesn't feel like a blessing. And that's what the psalmist is struggling with. Those things don't feel like blessing. But that's what it means to put on Christ, to clothe ourselves in Christ. That's the beauty of this thing we call Christianity. It, it upends everything the world teaches. Completely upends everything the world teaches. And this place of subhuman Life is the very place where the psalmist almost ends up. But he remembered the prize. He remembered the promise that God is our hope. I will dwell with you and be your God, and you will be my people. The entire point, the entire point is that we would be in the presence of Almighty God. We are not guaranteed fortune, security comfort, at least not yet, the one thing we are guaranteed is that God will dwell with us. God will dwell with us. Verses 23 and following. Nevertheless, I love that, nevertheless, right? He's basically saying, I thought about all this stuff. I considered all this stuff. I wrestled. I was mad at you. But there's a nevertheless. Redeemer, God is faithful to forgive our wanderings. I can't stress that enough. Whether those wanderings are, 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 are concrete and you actually live them out, or they're in our hearts and in our minds, he is faithful to forgive our wanderings. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Do you believe that? Do you believe that nevertheless, regardless of, of whatever you might have went through this past week, whatever you might have watched on Netflix last night, whatever you might have considered, and whatever you might have done, that nevertheless, you're still with God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. This is the promise 
This is the promise that one day we will step into eternity and the veil will be removed and we will stand face to face with our king. That is where Dr. Joe is right now. That's what's happening right now. And, and while we mourn, right, the, the title of this sermon series is Joy in the Morning. And I was very clever, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, right? I'm a very clever guy. And that's the point, that we mourn, we weep, because death is the worst, right? We can agree, death is the worst. It's unnatural, actually. It's not the way it was supposed to be. But guess what? There's joy in the morning. There's joy in the morning because we know that we know that we know that we will be with God for all eternity. And we get a foretaste of that now through the Holy Spirit. Redeemer, that's good news. That's good news. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do you believe that? There's nothing on earth that we should desire except for God. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God, or the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge. Why? That I might tell of all of your works. This is the promise. This is what makes it all worth it. We get God. We get God. The presence of God has always been the goal. That if God's people remained faithful, he would dwell among them. Which takes us back to our imagine if king. Whoever penned this psalm ultimately did not make the cut. If it was Solomon, he had a few moments of piety and faithfulness, but eventually he turned his back on the covenant. There were other kings, all of whom fell short of their calling to remain faithful to the law of God and to the people of God. In fact, as we look at the life of Solomon and where he ends up and the generation that follows him who also turns their back on God, we're left wondering, and those ancient Israelites reading and listening to this particular psalm would have been left wondering, imagine if this was our king. Imagine if when faced with the temptation to be like the kings of all the other nations, he resisted. Imagine if Israel fulfilled her end of the deal. Which brings us to our conclusion this morning. That maybe Solomon was writing more than a psalm of wisdom, but rather a psalm which was more prophetic in nature. Because there was one when faced with every temptation known to man. When he was fearful of the cost, sweating blood in the garden, pleading with his father for another way, there was one who remained faithful. See, Israel did uphold her end of the deal. The true Israel, the person of Jesus Christ, upheld his end of the deal. And so as we read this particular psalm, there's only one who fits. 
Jesus is our imagine-if king, the very image of the invisible God, never compromising, never bending, but living his life as the faithful son of God, fulfilling all that was required of him. And so by faith, we are brought into union with the faithful one. When we bend our knee to King Jesus, he, he, he forgives us of our sins and he adopts us into his family whereby we can now call God Father. And he seals that adoption with the person of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us and equips us and gives us life and causes us to be born again so that we might live our lives telling of the works of God as we see here in verse 28, that I may tell of your works, the works being referred referred here to are probably the work of Exodus, their gospel story, the Old Testament gospel story. But the work for us that we tell of is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that rescued us from our enslavement to sin and death and has called us to worship and serve him above all else. And while this might come with an array of difficulty and even at times suffering, it is what we're called to. The scripture speaks of us picking up our crosses and following Jesus. They speak of the foolishness of gaining all that the world has to offer while at the same time losing our souls. And so the question we need to ask ourselves and the question that Psalm 73 is asking, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is the presence of almighty God worth it. And I would venture to tell you from experience that he's worth every bit of it. He's worth every bit of it. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That purity comes because the Holy Spirit has cleansed us of our sin. We stand forgiven in the presence of Almighty God. And the beautiful part about that sentence, we stand in the presence of Almighty God. We get God, Redeemer. That's good news. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. And we are so grateful for the grace that you have lavished upon us, Lord God. We don't deserve any of it, but Father, you have made it so that we might stand in your presence. We can come to you. We can cast our frustrations upon you, our anger upon you, our fears upon you. And you still welcome us. Nevertheless, we are continually with you. Thank you so much, Jesus. Father, be with this community of faith, Lord God. Be with Redeemer Fellowship. Be with us as we mourn the loss of our older brother, Dr. Joe. Help us to mourn with hope, with joy, with peace, knowing that he stands in the presence of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for Dr. Joe's family. I pray for Coco, his children. Bring them comfort during this time. Bring our church comfort during this time. Lord, help us to live out the calling that you've placed upon our lives, the very thing that Dr. Joe would have us live out, that we might tell of your works that we might proclaim the good news of King Jesus in both word and deed to everyone we come in contact with, Lord God, that we would represent the kingdom of Almighty God, your kingdom, in, in a faithful manner, Lord God. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray.
Amen.